0: thanks Paul, wonderfully read and we've left it on a cliffhanger, hey? No, we'll do the whole chapter today, I promise, so we know what ends up happening and most of you know, let's be real, we know how this story kind of ends, don't we? It's one of the most famous stories in all of scripture, scripture, I would imagine and so, let's have a look at this and hopefully, we can have a look at this passage in such a way that means that we actually plumb the true depths of what this has to offer us today. So, why don't I pray that God might speak to us through His Word? Would you pray with me? Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word, that it has been inspired by the Holy Spirit and then has been given to us in such a way that we can plumb the depths of it, that we can get to know you, who you truly are, and for that reason, then who we truly are. Father, thank you for this story this wonderful moment where Daniel is saved, he is rescued. Thank you for his character and for the way that we can learn how it is that we can live in both uncertain times, but also in an uncertain place, in in a foreign place, in a place like Babylon. Please help us to be those people who are prepared for that, prepared to even receive direct opposition like he did, knowing that you deliver us and that you ultimately deliver us through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. Who's in, na- in and it's in His name that we pray. Amen. We're continuing, Daniel, that's pretty obvious. And what's been, I, I, I hope, consistent throughout, is that I've been encouraging us to think of ourselves as these disruptive disciples, these people who live a little bit counter to the way that the world lives, hence why we called it, courageously, counter. And so today, I, I want to tease that out again, because we're coming to the end of the first six chapters... And we see, again, Daniel standing out. He's weird and he is wonderful, isn't he, Daniel? In contrast to the people around him. Some people are just plain weird. Some people are just plain weird and wonderful. I wonder who is, the, in your opinion, the weirdest person you've ever met. Don't put it on the chat, because there's every chance they're part of this church. Because we are a weird bunch, aren't we? In fact, we're meant to be a weird bunch. Christians living in Babylon... In a foreign land to them, a place that isn't their home, in exile, as we've been seeing, will be weird and they will be wonderful. And Daniel exemplifies that for us. Daniel exemplifies the lifestyle of a wise and faithful follower of the Lord that points toward Jesus, that points towards the way that we are now meant to live as those weird and wonderful people in a wild land like Babylon. So he patterns what I hope we will practice. And so the first half of what we look at today, that's what we're going to look at, because as we close out this first half of Daniel, we're going to see next week, it changes a bit, chapter 7 will take us back into time and we start to head into the dreams. But today, I want us to round out this idea of living the middle way in Babylon. This was a book written to a people who had to make a choice they were living in a similar context where they were having all these pressures. They were having direct opposition, and they had to make the choice. Will we assimilate? Will we just conform to what it is that this world is pressuring us into? Or will we oppose? Spelt with an O, John Ubel, not an A. I like alliteration, but it was the wrong word. Oppose? Will we step outside and cut ourselves off and be separate completely? Or will we adapt? Will we start to live as those courageous people who follow in the ways of the Lord? quietly disruptive and distinct. That's the Christian life, that's the Christian life that Daniel will exemplify for us, particularly in these first few verses of chapter 6, weird and wonderful, as he applies some disruptive practices where he see, we see him, he is uncorruptible, he is disciplined, he is exceptional, but then the direct opposition comes and he needs deliverance in and from the den. Daniel is probably one of those most famous stories of the Bible, right? I mean, and the way that it's presented means, like a lot of famous stories, they are famously misunderstood. Like, check this picture out, for example. Here it is. There you go. That captures it nicely, doesn't it? When you think about the way that uh, Cassie described those lions, it's a beautiful image, that, isn't it? And it's not to say that at the end of this story, it looked a little bit something like that, but... Sometimes these famous stories that we have, because of the nature in which we look at them, we miss the most important part and I hope today we don't because this story is famous for a reason because it points to another famous story, the most, I hope, famous story that will last all the ages. So what has happened? Where are we? Chapter 6 begins and something's changed. Well, the power has changed because there's a new king in power. If you have a look there at verse 1, it pleased Darius, or Darius, Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom, with three administrators over them, and one of whom was Daniel. So the Persians are in power now, the Babylonians have been overcome, and here comes Persia, and they've got a different way of governing and their way of doing that, these 120 satraps, and then these three administrators, and you see then in verse 3, now Daniel so distinguished himself among them all, that he was going to be set over the whole crew, right? Daniel, who's probably around 80 years old now, he's not young anymore, he's, he's probably between 80 and 90, but he's still firing, isn't he? He is at the top in a few ways, we'll see that throughout, and one of the ways is that he is at the top of this list, he is second in the kingdom, but what we see is His character shine through. You, you're going to hear next to nothing from Daniel in this whole chapter, but you will see His character shine through with how it is that He acts, the practices that He puts in place and the things that other people have to say about Him. We're going to see some disruptive practices that I hope we can apply, that we can seek after. But to understand them well, and this is something that we probably could have done earlier on, but jump with me very quickly to Jeremiah chapter 28 and 29. If you have a Bible in front of you, which I do hope you do as your practice when you come to this church, chapter 28, 29, Jeremiah was a prophet who, who spoke about this time that Daniel is in now, the exile in Babylon. And you see, he spoke into the context and he sent had this letter sent because there were some issues with how it was that the people of God were living. There was an issue, because some of them were just simply opposing, they were cutting themselves off from the people of, ba- of Babylon and, and trying to set up their own space outside the camp, so to speak. And others were just simply assimilating, becoming so much like the people of Babylon, that they weren't distinct, they weren't God's people. But the Lord says something different to them. Have a look at verse 29, or chapter 29, verses 4 to 7, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile, from Jerusalem to Babylon, here it is, build houses and settle down, plant gardens and eat what they produce, the vegetables, <laughs> marry, marry and have sons and daughters and, and, and live a life, increase in number, it says. And then verse 7, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Do you see that? The Lord says, in this exile you're in, in that wild land of Babylon, seek its peace and prosperity. You weird and wonderful people, bring your weird and wonderful stuff to this place, confident in your identity so that you won't simply assimilate. Confident in the rule of life that you have, but you don't have to oppose. Confident in your trust of God. Daniel exemplifies this the very thing that he is called to, that it's, is prophesied for these people it's revealed in His practices, in both His public and His private life. This is a wonderful way for us to look inside our our own hearts today, because it's the very fact that He actually does do what God says and becomes prosperous that becomes the problem, isn't it? Verse 4, He's the one made second in the Kingdom and it's at this, verse 4, that they've got an issue, right? Right? The other 122 are like, this ain't right, and so we're going to suss this Daniel out. And so they take a look, verse 4, what do they do? They go and they look, they try to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they're unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. They could find no Corruption in, in him. Isn't that incredible? I mean, what would the 122 expect? I mean, they know what they're like. They're, they, they, they expect to find dirt. They know what it's like to scheme and to politicise and to backstab and to just, you know, to, to take someone on the side here. And they're scheming against their very king in all of this, too. You'll see later. You hear it. Darius, he, he loves Daniel. But what happened? He came out. Daniel came out squeaky clean, not just squeaky clean, they've got nothing on Him, except for one thing, their solution in verse 5, what is it? This is where they've got Him. Finally, these men, they thought, we can't get Him on anything, oh, we find Him on something, we can only find Him on something when it has to do with the law of His God. He is that consistently incorruptible and committed, that that's the only place they could get Him. And Darius knew this too, didn't he? You heard it in verse 16, that God that you consistently serve. Verse 20, he says again, continually serve. He is so consistent in his commitment. He is incorruptible, uncorrupted, trustworthy, neither corrupt nor negligent. That's weird, isn't it, in our world? That's wonderful, right? And he did it both publicly and privately because they searched through all the records. They tried to find something on him. But then even in his own home, they knew how to get him. Verse 10, how did they get him? With that consistent practice of incorruptible prayer that he had. So consistent, character. Imagine that being the only thing that people had on us. Like, in our public, and our private lives. That we are so consistently incorruptible because we seek the will of the Lord, that that's the only thing that they could find on us. We're called to that brothers and sisters, to live such good lives amongst the pagans, that although they accuse us of doing evil, they can't find anything, really, that they they see the good works that we're doing and end up praising God. That's Daniel, right? A weird and wonderful bunch, the Christians are meant to be, who bring salt and are distinct in such a way that actually make this world better, but that has to be consistent in our public and our private lives. We can't just be performing it, it has to be a rhythm to every single moment of our day. We're about to see that in Daniel, incorruptible, but also disciplined. See, they knew how to get him, didn't they? He was so committed to his rule of life, the the particular law that he had chosen, well, not just chosen, but he'd been chosen for the instructions of God, that they knew how to get him, and that's what happens in verses six to nine, they think of this incredible decree that they take to the king and his ego maybe got the better of him, that it seemed like maybe this is the best thing to do and all of a sudden there's this edict going out, 30 days, you can only pray either through or to me. That's not going to work for Daniel, is it? Because have a look in verse 10, what's the result and what does this reveal about Daniel's character? It reveals that he's disciplined. I, we just had the Olympics, didn't we? And again, it was very well-timed, perfectly time for us to be in lockdown, to be able to engage and watch with that. But one thing that you, you learnt when you watch, well, what you learn when you watch an Olympian perform, you know that they're not just showing up and doing it on that day, right? They have trained and they have worked and they have been disciplined in the practices that they've put in place day after day after day after day. After day. They have worked hard for that, privately working so that when the time came for public performance, they were ready, ready to go, Daniel privately worked, and he was ready for whatever the performance would be. We'll tease that out in a second, but have a look, verse 10. Now, when Daniel learned about the decree, that the decree had been published, he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward Jerusalem. Three times a day, he got down on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. There's no fuss to this, is there? He hasn't rushed off and scurried away. He's just gone, no fuss, no rush privately to go about doing his thing. Not all of a sudden, not freaked out and he has the windows open because he doesn't need to hide this, he's in complete freedom but that's not a spectacle, don't think that this is something that he's done to, oh, now I can show them all. No, this is normal for him and watch the contrast between Daniel and the hyenas, the other 122, the assailants who are plotting and scheming and threatened so they start to have to do all of this and what does Daniel do? He returns to his room, quietly disruptively weirdly wonderfully gets on his knees and prays not limited in his freedom he goes and does what he would have done for years praying toward Jerusalem which is probably picking up from 1 kings 8 when solomon dedicates the temple and speaks about this is the space toward when everything's ruined we still pray toward this place because why well because really this is thinking about praying towards the god of the universe that temple's gone at this point but they're praying toward the God of, you, of this universe, of, of, of heaven and earth, reminding himself of that and he does it three times a day. Psalm 55 picks this up, there's no scripture that says you have to pray three times a day but in Psalm 55 verse 17, it talks about the psalmist praying evening, morning, noon and as it flows on, they're praying with this urgency for their need but as they pray, they're reminding themselves of who God is and how he hears and answers. That's what Daniel's doing. He's petitioning his God and he's thanking him. See that? He's pray, he prays with thanks in this situation. Prayer and a practice like this, that consistent, disciplined approach, it trains us, doesn't it? It trains us to be reminded of where our true home is, that it's with God. It's an expression of our confidence in Him and so then also the identity that we've been given, who our God is and then who He's made us to be. And we don't pray towards Jerusalem, do we? We should pray for Jerusalem. When we don't need to pray specifically three times a day, there's no prescription of that in Scripture. Might be helpful though, but we petition and we give thanks in all circumstances, don't we? Urgently crying out in need and aren't we in need? Isn't our world in need right now? and they are in need of a God who hears and answers. So let's do that. Because ultimately for us, we must remember this is not our home, this world, this is not it. We don't belong here. We weirdly and wonderfully don't belong here. And at this point, I want to make sure, you know, I'm not trying to throw on you this burden. We're going to see how we do this in a moment. I'm not trying to say you have to all of a sudden be incorruptible and just every single moment pray, 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 pray. I'm trying to point out the practices that a weird and wonderful one will do because the wonderful's coming. Remember those Olympic athletes? They worked hard, didn't they? They were consistent for that moment of public performance. Did you notice for Daniel, his private life actually became his public performance and it's not a performance to bring him praise, it brought praise and will bring praise to the glory of God. Our life, our whole life public and private, is to be this incorruptible, disciplined approach to loving and serving and thanking and praising our God, right? All of it. Because I know this season's been harder. I, heaps of people have shared that the habits and practices that they normally do have been so much harder to sort of grasp, haven't they? It's been weird, but if our whole lives continue to focus in and circle around this, we will go back and go about our ways, no matter what it is that comes, no matter what decree, no matter what issue we face, we'll continue to find ways to be disciplined in following and trusting our God. In a foreign land, whatever obstacle, whatever opposition, and by God's grace, He will enable us to be exceptional, just like Daniel. See, Daniel was exceptional, wasn't he? He excelled. I mean, look at where he is, second in the kingdom, and look at what he's achieved. He's just reigning and ruling, it's, it seems, and yet that's when the opposition comes. Daniel is the example of what Jeremiah prophesied about. And at this point, I think it's important that, I just want to apply something that I want to make sure we, we touch semi-frequently as a church, because I want it to be an attitude within our, oh, I don't want the wrong attitude setting itself within our church, because Daniel's actually a fantastic example for all of us, not just for the ones that we might think are the spiritually elite. He's an example for all disruptive disciples who live this life in all the different places that they live, and Tim Keller gives a wonderful emphasis to this that has helped me to to present this little bit to you. See, a church shouldn't, a church should never start to Make its people believe that if you were more spiritual, then you'd be a missionary, that you would have gone up and and taken off overseas. If you were more spiritual, you'd be a pastor or you'd be even more committed to children's and youth ministry and you'd give up all of your other work time and you'd sacrifice that time to be able to go and do those things because they're the more spiritual and important things. Daniel, he had the gifts to be a full-time prophet and leader, right? just like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel, but he had a secular job. And man, did he do that job well. He got to the very top, a secular job where he excelled by the power of the identity that was given to him, by the power of God at work in him, where he was able to continue to express his deep commitment, that incorruptible nature, that disciplined approach to his following of Jesus that flowed, obviously, into the rest of his life. Excellent. Excellent. He invested his energy, his life, into the wild city of Babylon, always praying for God's kingdom values, that's why he prayed towards Jerusalem, right? See, we can't suggest that this, what I do, what those missionaries do, and they'll tell you this, please, don't think that I'm having to go on Mishos, they'll tell you back, hey, we're just like you. That's not a more spiritual thing to do. See, whatever field you find yourself in, please, if, like Louise shared earlier, where she's serving in, in school, if whatever field you find yourself in, know that that is a place that God is at work using you to the praise and glory of His name and excel. Bring peace and prosperity to that place. Make that place flourish. Make it a better place because one of God's weird and wonderful people happens to be there. I don't know, you might want to share now, even on the chat, as, as another reminder to yourself what you do and how it is that that is valuable to God and to the work of His Kingdom, throw in the chat, even in this moment, I don't, normally I'll say don't do it during sermons so you can focus but if you want to, tell us where it is you work and serve and it doesn't just have to be in secular jobs, it's in loving people, serving people, whatever that looks like and then do it in a way that makes this place flourish. I think of Norm Naylor when I think of this, Isn't it sad that he's left us? Norm was a weird and wonderful man. That's one of the biggest compliments I can give anybody when you think about what I'm saying here. And yeah, he was weird and wonderful in other ways too, but didn't he excel? Yeah, he wasn't perfect, no person is. But he sought to be uncorrupted, to be disciplined, and he was exceptional in his field. And didn't that bring a flourishing to this place? Praise God for the life of Norm Naylor, and I'm hoping many people praise God as a result of the life of Norm Naylor too. How did Daniel do all of this, though? How did Norm do it? How do we do it? Well, it was because of what he had been given, his security as a person of God, an identity and a spiritual efficacy. Have a look. at, In fact, look back. Flick back with me. Have a look at Daniel chapter 1, verse 17. How did it all go down there? Verse 17, in that chapter, to these four men, God what? made them work really, really hard, and they then were able to do it. No, God gave them the knowledge and understanding. All along, we've seen, I hope, as you flick through, go to chapter 4, verse 8. In chapter 4, verse 8, again, there's this, finally, Daniel came into my presence and I and I told him the dream. What What is it at the end? And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. They saw something spiritual, something that was set within. Same thing happens in 5, chapter 11, that same phrase, and guess where it is too? It's in our chapter today, in verse 3. It's sort of doesn't get translated well for us to identify it. Verse 3, where it says he had his exceptional qualities, is actually a spirit of excellence. There's something spiritual about this guy and it flows. He's remembering his true home because of it, remembering his God has made him the way that he has and we get to do the same, that we have a true home, that we have been made uncorruptible, uncorrupted, in the sight of God, because of what Jesus has done, remembering that He empowers us, that He has given us an identity that we don't have to fight for, to be like hyenas, gnawing at all the other stuff, that we don't have to plot and self-make and scheme and manipulate, politically or religiously, He's given it to us, praise God, and then live in that way. What confidence and freedom that gives. Arrogance, some might say, in fact, they will see and say that, because who can say this? Who in our world can say that they are so confident of the identity that they have, that it is the human identity and way to live? See, when we live in this weird and wonderful world and we say things like that, which is what the Scriptures will tell us, some are going to love us. Darius loves Daniel, but some are going to hate us. There's 122 others that wanted Daniel dead. One to 122, the odds aren't great, are they? And it's not a might, it's a will. We have to grasp this. There will be direct opposition. We covered a bunch of this back in Acts as well, and so I'm going to, in a moment, tell you which ones to maybe listen to. But you might want to go back and listen and see how similar some of the stuff that went down in Acts, the early chapters of Acts, is to what we're seeing happen for Daniel. But Daniel received direct opposition, didn't he? And in this wild world, there are plenty of hyenas and hungry lions around ready, seeking to just figure it out for themselves as well. Because what happened to Daniel? Remember verse 4? At this, when he got to that position, what was the issue? Maybe jealousy. And jealousy then led to a clash of commitments, because really this sets it up, the chapter sets it up beautifully in verse 5 and then verse 8, to see a clash of commitments, because you've got verse 5, the law of his God, that's what he's committed to. They knew that he wouldn't deny his God, but then in verse 8, Verse 8, there you see at the end, in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians. So they've set up this direct clash between his law and the law of the land. And the end result? Daniel faced the den. I wonder how they could have hated him though. How could you hate this man, Daniel, so much? Jealous of power, of course, prestige, there's racism there. Absolutely, there's anti-Semitism expressed in this by the way that they, they speak against him as that Jewish guy later. But also it's the same reason the world hated Jesus, the same reason the world hates Christians. See, when we are, if we are consistently characterised like Daniel, ultimately like Jesus, well, what does Jesus tell us? In John 15, let me tell you, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. You're weird and wonderful, disruptive and that confronts the world because they don't get it. See, when the rule of life, the law that someone lives by and everybody's got one, when it clashes, we can try everything we want as Christians to be relevant, to be like, to try and explain it but it doesn't make sense and I'm going to show you why in just a moment. We may have lulled ourselves into believing it's possible, but it's not. Or maybe we've just simply started to assimilate to an extent that there isn't that difference, that distinction. Opposition shouldn't surprise us, in fact, there should be some anticipation of it. This weird and wonderful bunch should anticipate it. Opposition and rejections, rejection of Christians ends up being inevitable when you look at what the Scriptures have to say. I said it before, the first generation of Christians go back to Acts 4 and 5, then get to Acts 7, where a guy's stoned for it. It wasn't that long ago in our history, and it's still happening today. When people refuse to obey human laws, and obey humans, and instead obey God, they're not going to like it. It's happening in Afghanistan right now, in Africa, in China, in Babylon, in Shinar, right here it will happen, and it will happen to the best of us. It happened to Daniel, it happened to Jesus, he's told us. So what does this famous story give us if that's the case, and why have you set it up with such a somber tone like that, Brett? Because I want us prepared. We all know the end, don't we, the end of the story. Daniel, patting those lions with their 28 centimetre jaws and having not eaten seven kilos of his flesh. The innocent one, it says, verse 22, have a look, you flick over, the innocent one Walks free, doesn't he? He's rescued, he's delivered. But let me be really clear Daniel was destined for death. In verses 16 and 17, you see he's given this order, they throw him in. And then in verse 17, the stone is brought out and placed over the mouth of the den, and it's sealed with the king's seal. Ain't nobody getting in, ain't nobody getting out. They'd know if they tried. I am, um, we went, have you ever been to Western Plains Zoo? I went to Western Plains Zoo a couple of years back with my family. And when you go and jump into the lion den, where they keep all of the lions, there's this huge rigmarole just to get in. And so there they are. Imagine if the glass wasn't there. But if, if, when you go in, they have like three different gates that you go through. And so it seems really exciting. And you think, wow, this is going to be epic. They're going, the lions are going to... Because they've got to call through and say, gate open, drive through that, call again, gate closed, next gate can open. Why? Because if a lion gets out, it's bad news. Now, the actual tour was a bit disappointing. They were a bit sleepy, and so they were just sitting way down the back where you could barely see them. So we sort of just had a bit of a cruise around this dusty bowl. But these lions weren't just simply sleepy. Some people might have suggested, oh, they were just timid, tame lions. You could just go in there and pat. No, have a look what happens to the others that get thrown in there just a moment after in verse 24. The 122 and all their family, they don't even get to the floor. It's horrific. The lions are death. this den is death, and it's a symbol of judgment. The problem with famous stories is that they're famously misunderstood and so to catch you up, the 122 think they've got him, don't they? The hyenas are laughing, the law is the law is the law, even if the king doesn't want to do this and he is desperate and hopeful, isn't he? And what he says in verse 16 actually gives us some hope. Have a look. May your God, he says, whom you serve continually rescue you. And then, after a sleepless night where he tosses and turns, Daniel, though, seems to just go quietly and confidently into this. Darius, as we we learn it all through his lens, comes back. And in verse 19, at first light of dawn, the king got up and hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice Daniel! servant of the living God, has your God whom you serve continually been able to rescue you from the lion's den? And what does Daniel answer? May the king live forever, faithful even to his king. My God sent his angel and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty. The innocent one is delivered and the king is overjoyed, isn't he? And when they drag him out, what do they find? no wound was on him, not a scratch. So, as a moral of this story, be faithful like Daniel and be delivered. God will snatch you from the laws, the jaws of death, be it at the hands of the Taliban, the clutches of death, the claws of disease, the stone and seal of loneliness and depression, if you just be faithful, if you just be innocent, no. No. We know in our experience that that doesn't work and that's not the way. Be innocent, you know, uncorruptible, disciplined, exceptional, then you're delivered. What a devastating message that is. You come out without a scratch, patting all the lines of your life that threaten you. Might feel like a good message, that's horrid, that message. Sending the hyenas scampering away because you are confident in your innocence. We could read it that way, couldn't we? that like the faithful three friends who went into the furnace and came out not smelling of smoke, we we could just champion on through this life. If that's how we read this, we will be neither weird nor wonderful, we will be weary and worried and broken. And so many people are, because we will never live up to that, and it's not how it works. Look again at verse 22, why is it that Daniel saved? My God sent his angel. The story isn't really about Daniel or lions at all there was another in the den, God came to him, just like there was another in the fire with those three men, right? One like the sons of God. Look again, please, at this famous story and how it points toward an even more famous story, because there was another one who was completely uncorrupted, who was disciplined, who was exceptional. He was uncorrupted, perfect in all his ways, all his works, all his words, to the letter of the law, to the extent that he fulfilled it. He was exceptional, a carpenter from Galilee with wisdom like no one had ever heard, showing power over sickness and disease and even death. And man, was he disciplined. He prayed, even going to that garden space that he would always go like his open window when death was at his door, faced toward his God. And he was innocent. Without a scratch, no wound found on him? (laughs) No that's where this story differs, in a momentous way. Innocent, led like a lamb to the slaughter, like Daniel into the den, but he was beaten, he was bloodied, he was bruised, he was scarred, he was scraped, he journeyed into the very den of death, didn't he? See, there's a big difference between Jesus, if you haven't picked it up yet, and Daniel. Daniel, not a scratch to be found, whereas Jesus dies. And Psalm 22 tells us, he cried out, and we hear it on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why, why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish, the cries of an innocent one? Well, yes, because of what he was doing in that moment. Because later on, Psalm, in Psalm 22, verse 13, you hear this, it, it talks about the roaring lions that tear their prey, open their mouths wide against me. A roaring lion was the sign of the judgment of God. Amos 3.8 talks about the lion has roared, Who will not fear? The den was sealed by guards the day Jesus died. But at first light of dawn, three days later, the joy, he was risen, right? For he is the living God. He went into the den of death and came out without a scratch? No. Through death and defeated it. And he has the scars to prove it, doesn't he? God has sent His one to rescue. That's what this story is about. One who has rescued us from our own sins through death upon the cross, and one who has raised himself, who was raised by the Lord, and so we will be raised with him in that future. Salvation, right? Salvation, past and salvation, future, with the scars to prove it, so we have certainty now. Knowing this, we then have a home, right? It sets our gaze to that. We have been made uncorrupted in His sight. We have been given an identity, His child, His people. And so we have this rule of life to live freely, confidently. Some might say arrogantly, the weird and wonderful people of Jesus. Because we know what it is that Darius proclaims. See that? This edict, a new edict goes out that all are to worship this guy's God. For He is the living God and He endures forever his kingdom will not be destroyed, his dominion will never end, he rescues and he saves, he performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions, he has rescued you and me from the power of sin and death. Praise be to this living God, right? See, I set this all up with that direct opposition bit, because this is a wild world we live in. Our hearts are aching for our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan. Our hearts are aching for our brothers and sisters across the world who live in the persecuted church. And we do, we particularly think of Afghanistan. They've always been second on the list in open doors, not always, but that's the spot. At the moment though, those pictures, right? The stories coming out, doors being knocked, church going underground. But like Daniel and his three friends, this is why they can go through any fire or den, not because of this the flames and the jaws of death, anyone can go through, because there is a living God who has and will rescue them in and through the den of death. Please pray for them, pray that they might persevere, and pray that the Lord Jesus might return, yeah, that we can go home. But also pray for us, pray for yourself, that we might live quietly disruptive lives, ready So we are seeking to be, by God's spiritual empowerment, the uncorrupted, disciplined, exceptional people he's made us, the weird and wonderful people he wants us to be, and therefore ready when direct opposition may come, because our God is the living God and he endures forever. That's the song we're going to sing as well that there is a living hope that comes from this living God. And so why don't you now, in your home or wherever you are, sing this. I heard that there's somebody who's at hospital um, with somebody as well. I don't think they'll mind if you sing it under your breath there, but everywhere else, sing it loud and sing it proud of the living hope of our great and glorious God.